Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Here we continue our series of slasher movies made in 1981. A very specific topic we've chosen for this month. This one, uh, on the heels of Just Before Dawn that we did last week, is called Hell Night, 1981, starring Linda Blair. I think when I was a kid, I was interested in seeing this movie mostly because I had a crush on Linda Blair. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had been on the video store shelves a lot. Has a great image of her on the cover climbing a gate, boobs half busting out of her um, <laughs> costume, with some hands trying to pull her back down in front of a scary house. And it's all about like a fraternity initiation night, which I've always felt is just ripe territory for drama and horror. And this is what this movie's about. It's about a fraternity slash sorority. <laughs> initiation night gone awry. I saw it, I think, when I was a teenager. I remember renting it and watching it, and I think I also remember falling asleep during it <laughs> and uh, never getting to figure out if you actually got to see Linda Blair's boobs in this one. So this time this time around, having watched it, I realized you don't get to see Linda Blair's boobs in this one. She does that a little earlier in, uh, in one or two other movies. So um, anyway, the small things that we remember and that seemed to matter so much to us <laughs> when we're when we're teenagers anyway uh yeah so i don't remember enjoying it terribly much but i did want to revisit it because i thought uh it has starred linda blair it does have a bit of a cult following it certainly was on the video store shelves of every horror section that i ever walked through and I'd forgotten a lot about it. And it takes place in 1981 as a slasher movie. So this is Hell Night. Craig, uh, what was your history with the movie? So going into this, I couldn't remember if I had seen it or not. And watching it, I kept thinking, I think I've seen this. There were, I don't know, not even necessarily parts, but like I think that I vaguely remember Linda Blair in this dress that she wears, um, Mm -hmm. kind of like this period dress. I kind of vaguely remember her in that. And I think the fact that I think that I have seen it, but I don't remember it, doesn't really bode well for the film, because Mm -hmm. we were supposed to do this a couple of days ago, and it's been a couple of days since I've seen it, and I almost don't remember seeing it again. (laughs) (laughs) right that not memorable (laughs) it really is it's quite sad Uh, and it could be you know it's got this great gothic look to it the director is tom de simone who i believe uh, got his start in the business editing together children's films then got into the adult film world and did mostly gay porn i think and then this, I believe, is his first mainstream directing role. And uh, he did this at the behest of Chuck Russell. Now, Chuck Russell was a producer on this movie. Like we said before, with 1981, this was the kind of a golden era for slasher movies when everybody was, especially several producers, were realizing what gold mines they could be. So they were pumping these out like crazy. And so they're, even for some of these lackluster movies, you find a lot of crossover with important names. Chuck Russell produced this, but he later, um, just a f- about six years later, was a writer and director, actually, uh, on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Mm, yeah. He, he ended up directing the remake of The Blob. He did The Mask. 
<laughs> Eraser, Scorpion King. He's still actually directing movies. So he went on to produce and direct a lot of horror films and then went very much into mainstream big-time films uh, after this. It's interesting I saw that Frank Darabond was a production assistant on this movie. And we all know him from the Shawshank Redemption. He got his start with some Stephen King pictures. Um, and then, uh, of course, he produced The Walking Dead. And, oh, you know, he's he's well-respected and, and a very good writer and director in the industry. And uh, supposedly an uncredited um, Kevin Costner was a grip on this. So it, it does have an interesting cast of characters behind the scenes. Of course, Linda Blair, uh, the star of The Exorcist, The Exorcist Part Two. Around this time, she was really trying to break out of her image of a, of a girl, basically. She wanted people to know she was an adult actress capable of doing adult roles. One of the first things she did was pose nude in a, an adult magazine. Yeah, and then he she just kind of ended up back into B pictures and exploitation roles. She did... What, Savage Streets and some women in prison movie, this movie, um, never quite broke out of that. Which is too bad. She was fun to watch in this. Yeah, she is. She's very cute. She's she's very, uh, you know, and we say cute. I mean, even by the time Exorcist 2 came around, she wasn't a little girl anymore. She was a young woman. She's, you know, a, a, a beautiful woman. You know, I, I just don't feel like... At least as far as I know, unless there's something that I don't know about, she just never really got a chance to prove herself as much more than what she had already done. Mm. I, you know, the the Exorcist was such a huge movie. You know, whether people liked it or or hated it, you know, it was controversial and and widely seen. And I think that she just she couldn't break away from her connection to that. And so she, you know, she was cast in this type of movie. And I, I've seen a couple of other movies very similar to this one that she was in. And I really want to believe that given the chance, she could have done a lot more. And, yeah. and if you see her, if you see her today, she's still, I mean, you know, she's a woman of a particular age, but she's still very beautiful. And it would be nice if she had, I don't know, I just would have, because I do like her. I like her a lot. She she does have a very distinctive voice, mm-hmm. kind of a girlish voice, but whatever. I mean, that could easily be overlooked if she were given the right part. But. Well, she has a bit of a baby face, too, really, which... She does. ...isn't bad. I mean... Oh, no, oh, no. Especially for this era, you know, it kind of actually fits in quite well with what we were looking for in... in in the early to mid eighties for as far as like, um, you know, female leads and things like that. What was the style at the time? I would say, and and she's not even a bad actress, honestly. No, I, I think that's she's... the thing. I don't think she is. I think, yeah, I think that given the right opportunity, she could have done very well. She, I think has, has not tried to separate herself from the, the legacy of the exorcist, but mm. I don't think that she has any interest in any further, connection with that you know I, I know that they are prepping for a new trilogy um that's going to be a continuation of the original film and uh ellen burston uh who played her mother in the original film is attached and in fact has already filmed her part of the movie but i don't think that linda blair is attached in any way and, and on the one hand i understand like i understand the been there done that been trying to break away from this for so long i'm not gonna 
tie myself down to that again. On the other hand, I hope that it's not a big missed opportunity for her. You know, who I don't know. I all I know about it is that I think the it's the same people behind the most recent Halloween entries which which were successful have been successful who knows if they even approached her i don't know um i would be kind of surprised if they didn't but as far as i know at this point she's not connected and and you're right i was excited to go back and have a look or another look whatever it may be at this again really solely because of her because i do like her yeah, uh, and uh, I I was gladly anticipating seeing her again. Unfortunately, the movie just there's just not much to it, and there's just not much to her character. She really is reduced to that you know cowering woman role, girl yeah. role. Um, she doesn't have a lot of gravitas, or I mean, she's she's constantly just running away. I mean, that's all she does: she, running away and cowering and crying and yeah. That's that's kind of all she has to do, which is too bad. I you know th- I think that there was opportunity to give her character some cojones, and they just didn't. Yeah, that's very disappointing. Uh, you know, she's not a strong final girl right <laughs> she's not the take things matters into her i mean no. she does in a sense she's a damsel in distress yeah and then she ends up being the final girl but she's not it's not like she's not the only thing that they give her is that she can work on cars yes That's she's it. a mechanic <laughs> i bet you didn't think i was a mechanic did you she says to one of the characters and i'm looking at the screen going Nope, I didn't, and I kind of don't believe it either, but whatever. (laughs) I mean, there's one other nice thing I would think I would say about... There are two nice things I will say about the movie, though, just overall. Number one, I thought that the the cinematography could be pretty inventive at times. Even though a lot of the movie's pretty dark, and sometimes it's a little hard to see what's going on, it's not as bad as other films like that. I think there was an inventive use of shadow. There's some really interesting camera angles in here. If it wasn't just so darn boring with so much of just plodding around. And so even those cool camera angles get kind of not so cool anymore when they're just showing you people walking slowly through the garden, people walking slowly up the stairs, people walking slowly through corridors, people sitting around and just having long conversations in the bedroom. Uh, Uh The other nice thing I liked about the movie, I I thought the music was nice. It reminded me just a little bit of another movie where the music was kind of really nice, The House on Sorority Row somewhat orchestral score at times, which is a little unusual for this time when things get a little more synthy, you know, in our horror movies. And I I looked up the composer. He hasn't composed, like, he's not credited as a composer on too many movies. Like, he he did The Dead Pit, uh, Lawnmower Man, this movie, a couple others. But he is credited in the music department on Halloween, The Fog, uh, Deadly Games, Midnight Express... So um, I think, again, he was in the wheelhouse, which I believe uh, Chuck Russell also produced Halloween. Actually, it, uh, the, the producers of this movie, this is the last film for the production company. I think it's called Compass International Pictures. They are still, I believe, uh, even though that, that company is dissolved, the previous owners of that company, they are still the owners of the rights to the Halloween franchise. 
So they're still making Halloween movies. And they made a handful of horror movies during this time. And this was uh, one of them. So a lot of the folks kind of in that crew or cast or whatever uh, kind of bounce between all these movies. So uh, like I said earlier, it's just like you, you get the intersection of some some famous people, some interesting people, some people who would go on to do great things, a lot of people who wouldn't, as you would kind of expect from this time in 1981, where a lot of people are doing a lot of horror movies. What I was going to say was what was interesting to me was that it seemed like the filmmakers, presumably the director, wanted to make a gothic, per- gothic period piece yes um like castle freak or or cellar dweller or or something like that that's what they wanted to do um and uh, you know this is all in my head you know imagining what was happening behind the scenes but it seemed like the people with the money said no make a fraternity sorority movie Mm -hmm. and they were like okay well fine but i'm gonna put them all in period costumes and put them in an old gothic mansion yeah and have a cellar freak like it just seems like the whole fraternity sorority thing is almost just a contrivance yeah for them to be able to make this kind of gothic movie oh yeah which is fine you know i've seen these kinds of movies before and and they can be fine but that's that's what it is you get this really cool location like a big house or a castle or something and it's got this creepy backstory and there's some sort of freak dwelling in the cellars or the tunnels under the house that picks people off and and that's it (laughs) like yeah uh, there you go there's the movie the the whole concept of this being like a sorority fraternity dual initiation kind of thing it works it just seems a little contrived because you know like i guess these i i was about to say that i didn't participate in greek life at all that's not entirely true i was in a fraternity a, a theater fraternity so it wasn't you know one of these like the way, social it, kind of party like party right, kind of the, right the way that they're portrayed in movies it wasn't like that mm-hmm. not to say that we didn't have fun. parties we certainly did but <laughs> it was a different kind of thing but you know this is the stereotypical for fraternity sorority kind of thing and i know that for their initiations i know they have to be much more careful now because there's a lot of crackdown on hazing and as there should be because yeah. you know young people get hurt and and worse so um but you know there there is still that the whole initiation kind of thing um i know that's a thing and and these hell nights i know were once you know a big thing Mm -hmm. but i never knew them to be like big costume parties right (laughs) you know yeah I, sometimes I feel like these movies. I was also participating in Greek life, and like you, I was in a music. I was in a music fraternity, and we did have some of these elements. We actually did have a hell night, that kind of thing. And so I, I feel like I got a little taste of it. But sometimes, uh, based on my own experience and kind of what I went through, and kind of what I saw my friends go through, and hearing them talk about their stuff, the movies like they don't quite get it completely right. You know, they make it just a little more bombastic and and crazy than it really is. I don't know maybe on like very very fancy and rich 
campuses where lots of money and history is involved, then they can be this elaborate, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's this huge blowout party at the, I mean, where it's just like pretty much like everybody you could imagine is cram packed into every available space on the lawn and inside this giant fraternity house that looks like uh, the Parthenon, you know? <laughs> and uh, and it looks like fun. It like, looks like I'm a blast. For a costume party. Sure. I mean, it was the, huge. You know, like, like you said, I mean, it looks like everybody on campus is there. And they're in the beautiful costumes. It's not like they just went down to Walmart the night before and slap a costume together, you know? These are like, I mean, Linda Blair's outfit is sort of a I don't know, like a little red riding hood type thing, but she also uh-huh. has a really pretty brooch on and and, and a choker and it, it's and it's corseted, you know, like yeah. it, it, it's it's a costume piece. It's yeah, it, she didn't get this at Party City. No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even the even red riding uh, even uh, I'm sorry, Robin Hood uh, whatever type character, Seth, Seth's character. He's pretty decked out with his Robin Hood thing and a bow yeah. and arrow and everything like that. Those are two of the characters. I guess we, we just get a brief glimpse of each of the characters at the party. There's uh, Seth, who's like the Robin Hood. I believe Linda's character's name is Marty. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then there's Peter, who's the president of the fraternity, who's in this big cape and just, I don't know, just looks like a dashing period guy, right? Like, yeah. Scott, who's a pirate, who has a parrot on his shoulder. Well, well, even though later on he just loses pieces of his costume, he still has that parrot stuck on his shoulder, which I thought was kind of a cute touch. And then later on, and a Jeff, Jeff, who is a very nice looking man. And I was curious about Jeff because I swore I had seen him before. He's played by an actor named Peter Barton, and he was Doug in Friday the 13th, uh, the final chapter. I think that was part four. And I apparently had a very long run on The Young and the Restless, up all the way from the, the late 80s to the 2005. Oh, yeah. I think he's married to Eileen Davidson, uh, who oh. was on uh, Days of Our Lives. For, and, and she was also in one of those, I don't remember if it was Sorority Row or... The one where they killed their house mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. I think it was Sorority Row. And then he, I, when I was looking on IMDb, it looks like he was in this wackadoodle um, TV show that lasted maybe one season called The Powers of Matthew Starr. He was Matthew Starr, who's like this alien from another world who gets stuck on Earth and exiled to earth or something like that and ends up as a high school student but the government yeah. knows about it and other people know about it. do you know I that vaguely re- no i vaguely remember hearing about it i don't remember the show at all, i feel like but... i might have seen it once because i saw pictures of this and i was like god this looks familiar yeah there's him okay so he's like the nice rich guy mm-hmm. marty uh linda blair is like the the really nice pretty girl from the wrong side of the tracks and Seth who I I thought was really nice looking he's this tall blonde guy uh, surfer dude Patton yeah he's like kind of like the I don't even remember if he smokes weed but he's kind of like the stoner type then there's Denise who plays the Linnea Quigley role like right <laughs> The, the the fun slutty girl. <laughs> the fun slutty girl who doesn't who doesn't get naked. <laughs> <laughs> and she's played by uh, a, a girl named Suki Goodwin. And I don't know if the actress was British or if she was trying to do a British accent. 
for unexplained reasons. I didn't get that. Um, but I did like her. She was fun. Yeah, she was. She was <laughs> she fun. She seemed like the life of the party. Like, if she hadn't been there, it would have been the most boring night ever. <laughs> I actually think you're 100% right. Because <laughs> <laughs> she brought the booze and the drugs and the sex, and it, everybody else was just kind of like just hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, I got Quaaludes and Jack Daniels. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, it sounds like you've settled into American life really well. <laughs> yeah. Here's a funny story. At 43 years old, I had to Google what Quaaludes. Oh, because no. I've heard them, I've heard them talked about in movies like bazillions of times, but I really didn't know what they were, so I had to Google. <laughs> I think they were. They a, sounded nice. They were a little before our time. I think it was like my par- our parents' era, right? Was the Quaaludes? Uh-huh. Well, like early '80s, I think they were. They were big, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's too bad they're illegal because they sounded nice, <laughs> <laughs> relaxing, you know. Well, the poor girl like wakes up from a from like a bad like just wakes up and has a hard time getting to sleep. So she pops one and downs it with a sip of Jack Daniels. And I was like, "Holy crap! Okay, this is what you do when you just want to go to just before you go to sleep." Yeah, no, that's that's see, that's the thing that like they're that's what they are. They're like anti anxiety relaxants, and they used to be um, prescribed to people, I think, for or I don't know, maybe not prescribed. I don't think they were prescription, but. People t- they were like Valium or something. People took them to relax. And the uh, other side effect is that they released people's inhibitions, which arguably could be fun in the right context and, and terribly dangerous in the wrong context. Mm. But anyway, so what happens is, so there's the big, huge party. And then I guess that every year the tradition is they take the new pledges and they force them to spend the night in this big, scary mansion. It's this place called Garth Manor. And it looks great. Like, the exterior of this place looks amazing. Like, it's so cool. And they shot it in, you know, the exterior and the interior were two totally different locations. And um, I think there were a total of three locations altogether because out outside of the house there's also like a huge garden with like a hedge maze and all kinds of stuff that you don't really see a lot of because it's dark but i mean it looks very elaborate and it, it's it's cool it looks like either a very impressive gothic mansion or like a castle it, it, it looks fantastic um and the interior looks the same like i i guess this place just sits uninhabited all the time and it's full of you know like antique furniture and candles a, a bazillion candle loads and, stuff. and loads of lit candles which i i think as wild and freewheeling as this fraternity is made out to be in the beginning and maybe even sloppy boy they are organized when it comes to putting this hell night together i can't even imagine the amount of time it took for them to put all those candles and light them all around that uh, that place, as well as wire it up for all the shenanigans that they... That exactly. They... You know, they've set up all these pranks and gags and scares throughout, which is, is fun, but, like, seriously, like, they just have free reign of this place. Yeah, like... They do... And they do this every year, and the police know about it, and they're it's just fine. Like, well, okay. And I mean, you already said it. This is a castle freak movie, so they they they, they say early later um, they make mention 
the guys who have wired it up who later come by to uh, and and this would be um, Peter the president and Scott the the pirate dude and then some girl named uh, May just three of them so I guess it all falls on their shoulders but they they happen to mention that there are, oh tunnels and stuff all under here and he's like be careful down there because you can get lost and also you know I've got tons of wires and things running through it you know Scott is the tech wizard or whatever. And I'm thinking, so you you do this on a regular basis. You have completely wired this up. You've been through all those tunnels, wiring it to the point where you have to tell somebody, don't go down there because you might trip on them or something. And you never ran across the two castle freaks on the premises? Right. That's a little bizarre. Yeah, hard well, to believe. And that's, that's the big twist. It's not just one, but two castle freaks, which you don't really find out until the end, but it doesn't really matter. Um but but I thought the same thing. Like, why these castle freaks come at them like right away? Like, mm-hmm. where they've been doing this presumably for years. It's a tradition. Why now? Mm-hmm. Doesn't make any sense. But whatever. Peter is the president of the fraternity. May, who is only on screen for maybe three or four minutes, um, is is the sorority president. I think when they're taking the pledges up to, and it's a, like a whole like trek. Like everybody dozens if not hundreds of people like parading them to this house <laughs> um, but peter gives peter gives the whole backstory and it's like detailed yeah uh, it's a long story first child she bore raymond was a boy a mongoloid boy they called morris now morris brought great sorrow to the guards and they immediately set about to have another child and they were soon cursed with the baby girl suzanne as she was so hideously deformed that it was impossible to tell from looking at her if she was male or female. <laughs> uh, to her father's immense disgust, she used to drag herself around the house with the help of her one good leg. <laughs> now, the guards were very fanatical about their privacy. They didn't want to have to be dependent on anyone else, so they isolated themselves up here. And that is why they never put in any modern utilities. There's no gas, no electricity, and no phone. So again, they tried to have a child, and within the year, the guards added Margaret. But unfortunately, it soon became apparent that poor little Margaret could neither hear, nor speak, nor see. But good old Ray was determined, and he decided to have one last go at it. So Lillian got pregnant again, and she carried the child for ten and a half months, until finally she delivered a little gork named Andrew. Andrew never spoke a word in his first 14 years. He just made these grunts and groans like the sounds of wild animals. Now, Raymond Garth lived isolated in this house for 14 years with this freak show until he couldn't stand it anymore. Twelve years ago, he assembled the entire family in the parlor. And then he took his dear wife, Lillian, and he strangled her to death. Then he took the mongoloid son, Morris, and he bashed out what little brains he had with the fireplace poker. Then he took the deformed little Suzanne and he impaled her with the same poker. Then he took the deaf, dumb, and blind little Margaret, and he slit her throat. And then Raymond Garth got a rope and hung himself to death. The story is he killed all but one, but he also throws in the detail that two of them weren't found. So it's planted very early that there could be two of them, and in fact there are. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because, you know, they, they get in there, they lock them in, they give them a gun... They uh, chain and padlock the front gate and say, don't even try to climb the fence because the spikes on the top are super sharp and you'll 
cut your nuts off or something. Well, and um, Peter makes a big show, too, of shooting off the lock on the front gate. Yeah. Which then he's able to lock back up with a key. Did he just switch locks or something? I'm he not... did. He did. It was like an it was an old timey lock before, oh, and he, gotcha. he put a new one on it. It takes a while. Like they go inside, they hang out. the the two wilder The two wilder ones run off together immediately and take off all their clothes to like lounge around in their underwear. I don't think. I don't think they ever actually get around to having sex. Oh my gosh, <laughs> they're like. It comes to them a couple times we're in the bed, and the best way I can just describe it is that they're just, like, rolling around chuckling. Yeah. <laughs> He's in his underwear. She's in her underwear. Her underwear are cute. They're just kind of slapping each other. It's endless chuckling. She looks like she's um going to a Rocky Horror Party. She's, like, in, like, a, a corset and black panties and black stockings with the garter belts mm-hmm. um red it's, bra it's adorable yeah it's mm-hmm. adorable she looks super super cute and he's wearing these tight little boxer shorts n- not boxer briefs boxer shorts that they clearly stitched the crotch up on because otherwise his wiener would have flopped right out because they are <laughs> tight boxer shorts and you were looking <laughs> well obviously plus i was also thinking because they like roll around a lot and i'm like those mm. are tight boxer shorts he must be wearing like jockeys underneath because otherwise yeah. stuff would be happening exactly but it's cute I, I actually think they're very cute and they're fun because the other two just like talk like super boring like so what does your family do oh uh, well we're super rich what does your family do well my dad's a mechanic like it's boring yeah. not only is it boring maybe it's supposed to be written as a cat and mouse kind of thing between them where he's expecting or hoping that there will be some sparks or something that happens that night. But she's just very much like, no, no, you sleep in your own bed and do this and whatever. And then just sort of out of the blue, they have more of this boring conversation. No really new or exciting information is exchanged between them, but she just kind of hops over to his bed and starts kissing him. It's just so, it feels so paint-by-numbers. It feels so contrived. These are all nice-looking people. They're all competent enough actors in this beautiful setting and all that, you know? Yeah, they're fine. It just feels like they, this is stuff they got to get through when it comes to we need to make sure these two have some their own romantic moment as well. And that's fine. I mean, it's not like this is atypical. It's just that, no. the, you know, the, the Linda Blair and the uh, her guy, they are... The wholesome ones. And then Mm -hmm. the other two are the wild party ones. The goofy ones, that's fine. It's just, you know, you separate them into couples, and the wholesome ones are boring. Um, The other two are cute and fun, but, you know, there's really not a lot to what's going on. My favorite part, I think, with the, the fun ones is when she asks him, like, what he likes to do for fun. And he says that he likes to surf. Yes. And then, like, he's he's telling her about surfing, and he, like, uses her body as the surfboard and kind of acts it out. And I thought that was really cute. And I thought so, too. They were both, like, sexy and fun. Like, I, like, I was, I was rooting be for them. them. Like, have a good time. Like. <laughs> do it already. <laughs> yeah, don't just you don't need to just walk around and brood at each other pensively lighting candles around the room and <laughs> And they like 
they hear noises because like there are gags and things set up. I don't even remember. Like they hear screaming and and they find that there are speakers set up there and yeah, b- because there Peter are other and- silly little gags like, you know, opening drawers and a snake pops out or stupid stuff like that. There was one part that I had no idea what was happening because there's one time I think the boys go off for some reason, Linda Blair gets left alone. Mm-hmm. She sees a ghost. Yeah. Was that supposed to be a real ghost? Oh, God. I have no idea because it's well, it's the kind of thing that would be really hard to fake yeah. by these guys in the fraternity. It, it's like a Pepper's ghost illusion, you know, or it's like you could see through this ghost. And I'm, I'm still not sure if she was supposed to have seen a real ghost or not there. I think it was supposed to be a real ghost. Oh, it's it, so, because it's it, so hokey. It, it looked, if it is, it was hokey, but it looked like, you know, it looked like Disney's haunted mansion. That's what yes. it looked like. Yes. You, you know, exactly. like this, this transparent ghost that, yeah, I know, can, I know can be done because I've been to Disney's haunted mansion. I know that those kinds of illusions are possible. I just can't imagine that these frat guys were able set to that set up. that up. Yeah, I mean, it's these three people, right, that come back. So after they've locked them in and then they're in the house talking and rolling around and chuckling and whatnot, the Peter the President and Scott the Pirate Dude and May in the leopard outfit all come back and they're pulling out, you know, they're wandering the grounds and they're picking up by the side of a tree, like the little control unit that Scotty has put in there. And uh, he's walking around and telling him, be careful, don't fall down into the tunnels because I got all that wired up. And he's flipping switches and it's locking doors on the inside or making sounds come out of a speaker, which actually one of the interesting things I thought about the movie was, of course, right away, the people in the house, they know that they're it's just part of a prank. Right, they're not running around actually scared that they really think there's a ghost. No. I mean, for a, for a little bit, Linda Blair's character, when she sees that ghost you were talking about, gets really frightened because, well, how could they fake that? She can't open the door. But then uh, once she's rescued, more or less, by uh, Jeff, he comes in and they go outside and they find the control unit and he he and her kind of coordinate a little bit and he shows her that when he flips the switch it can lock the doors and when he flips the switch again it unlocks them and so they all just kind of walk around with a bit with quite a bit of skepticism towards all the sounds and things and that are happening in the very beginning and and that's kind of nice you know that's a nice touch but then not a lot happens you know it's just like, it just, God, the movie was an hour in, and I was like, it sh- shouldn't it be done by now, and it wasn't, and then it's an hour and a half, and I'm like, oh, okay, this movie should almost be done. It's like, oh, no, there are like 20 more minutes to go, and it's just a lot. It ends up, I think, being a lot of watching these guys outside flip switches and things, and these people inside having boring talk with each other, and then when there is something spooky or is something bad that's happening, they spend about five minutes walking quietly down, you know, a 12-foot hallway with a candle in front of them, like a haunted mansion movie tends to be. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's very much in keeping, like you said, with what they were going for, which is a sort of house on Haunted Hill, gothic, haunted house movie crossed with a modern slasher movie, I think. But God, does does it get boring for a while? Yeah, I was gonna say people do start getting picked off, but it, it, 
when they do, it, it happens pretty quickly, and it's, it's like, one of the extra characters first. Like, yeah. May walks around the corner outside and gets grabbed and uh, dragged down into the tunnels, and then she gets her head chopped off, right? Yeah, pretty pretty quickly. There's, there's not a lot of blood in this movie, but I thought that effect uh-uh. where... It's got her head pinned against the wall, and you see the axe come to her head. And just for a split second, you see the rest of her body drop. It's just enough to be pretty jolting. Yeah, it's it's very quick. You see her head get cut off. There's a little bit of blood, but it cuts away right away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Scott, the pirate guy, climbs up onto the roof to set up some kind of trap. And he gets killed up there. I don't even remember... What happens to him? Well, the monster picks him up, and and a lot of the kills are kind of like this. That you know, they seem to be setting up quite a bit of tension. It's all kind of through POV camera work and stuff like that. But then suddenly, the monster just like rah and grabs him and immediately twists his neck around, and he's dead. Yeah, it turns his head like 180 degrees all the way yeah. around, so he's dead. And then the president, Peter, gets like, killed where is everybody? in the hedge maze. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he goes looking for May, can't find her, goes looking for Scott, can't find him, runs up to the roof. Well, he I think he does find Scott. I think he well, finds he does. Scott's he cranks, dead body. He cranks the crank, which is supposed to be, I guess, a dummy that Scott was going to hang outside the window. But when he pulls it up, it's actually Scott himself, so... Yeah, then he goes downstairs into the hedge maze, which I didn't realize the grounds had a hedge maze. It would have been nice for them to establish that early on or at least make uh-huh. a comment about it when he's giving this long spiel because you don't ever see a hedge maze. But it became pretty yeah. clear suddenly when he's you know, kind of lost in these hedges that, oh, there's a hedge maze on the site. So. Right. Um, yeah, he gets he gets uh, stabbed through uh, the stomach, I guess, through the one of With the hedges size. by a guy. And I think it was at this point that I realized there are definitely two people here because, uh, you know, they don't show the guy's faces very clearly or very quickly. It's a lot of silhouette or it's a lot of really fast movement or maybe just their arms. But one of them is clearly hairier than the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's well, true. One of them's almost a little bald, and one of them's a little hairy. And so, at this point, I was like, oh, there are definitely two people here. Especially here in the hedge maze, where... Now, of course, they do this in horror movies all the time, where a monster is immediately somewhere he could not possibly have had enough time to be. Right. But, you know, Scott kind of turns and looks, and he sees a guy dart by, and then when he flips back around toward the camera, you know, a hand comes out and grabs him. I said, okay, there are definitely two guys here. So, later on that twist, um, I think it was foretold. Pretty early on, one of these guys was pretty hairy, almost like a wolf man, and the other one was clearly a little more bald, and almost, when you did see a flash of his face, almost looked a little bit more like a vampire. Um, yeah, almost like um, the guy from Salem's Lot, a little bit, yeah. Like yeah, kind of, uh, kind of without hairless. the context. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right, and, and so then we're left with the people inside. Before Peter gets killed, he does a funny mirror scare with um the fun girl denise which she like doesn't even realize it's a scare i guess because of the quaaludes it's pretty she like uh he he appears behind the mirror in like this gross mask and she sees it and she's like whoa those quaaludes are terrible for my skin i thought that was hilarious (laughs) yeah but then she she is in bed with uh, Seth, 
and he gets up to go to the bathroom. And when he comes back, he lays down, and she's completely under the covers, or so he thinks. But he pulls the covers back, and it's just May's severed head. Uh, so he freaks out and goes running and alerts the other two, Marty and Jeff, and they're all running around and freaking out. They don't know where Denise is because she's just missing. Yeah, the, the Seth grabs the gun. He grabs the gun and he just he wants to get out of there. Like the yeah. other two are kind of concerned about finding Denise, and he's like, uh, "Whatever, we'll send somebody back for her. We need to get out of yeah. here." He tries to shoot the lock off the gate. They're all three at the gate, and and they realize that the gun they were given just has blanks in it. Yeah. And so there's this kind of tense scene where he's going over the top. I mean, when you know when you hear the foreshadowing of the "be careful the top of the gate, it could cut your nuts off" or whatever, I thought that Seth was going to end up impaling himself on the top there. I did and, too. And uh, it doesn't happen. He leaps over the other side. And is like, all right, I'm going to run and go get help, and he just takes off. And every now and then, we're going to cut back to Seth unsuccessfully trying to find help, including from the police who just write him off as a, oh yeah, another kid from the fraternity who's been causing trouble all night. One thing that bothered me was like, it was so treacherous to climb over that gate. Wasn't there anywhere else that they could have climbed over? Like, right. (laughs) Surely there was a wall or like there had to be some other way. Yeah. Well, they didn't look very hard, right? That's the other thing. Like, come on. (laughs) They just kept running back and it's locked. And we have seen that the key for the, the padlock is dangling from peter's dead finger in the mm-hmm. in the hedge maze so it's just a matter of time before somebody finds that but yeah um, so yeah so then it's uh marty and um jeff just kind of hanging out and being creeping scared. around long ass walk back to the house long ass walk back up the stairs of the house they end up in the same room that they're going to return to three or four times um, which is the room they've mo- spent most of their time in, talking. I think they find uh, Scott. They do find Scott hanging, right? Because as they creep through the house, they hear like a tick, 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 tick kind of noise, which they follow to a storage room, and they see the tick noise is uh, Scott's kind of swaying outside the window to the storage room, and his parrot is tapping the, the window. So they know yeah. that Scott's dead. But anyway, they just go back to their room. And they sit around. I thought one of the only cool scenes in the movie is they're barricaded in this room. Um, They've got like, you know, a chair up under the doorknob to the door. uh, And so they think and and he's got some kind of weapon. I don't remember what he pitchfork. Well, he had had gone. He had gone back out once they were up in that room. He looks down. He says, oh, I see a light in the garden. And then. He says, I'm, let's split. I'm going to go, no, 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 don't leave me here. No, you stay here. Everything's fine. You stay here. He loves to do this, right? It's classic horror movie anyway. And so he goes down and he investigates in the hedge maze. That's when he finds the body uh, and he finds the flashlight uh, as well as a, a pitchfork down there. He finds, uh, I think that's when he finds um, uh, uh, Peter's body, right? And he takes the key from his hand and everything like that, so. No, he doesn't have the key because she finds it later. The part that I liked was when they were barricaded in the room and the camera is obviously facing them um, and they're just talking. I don't even know what they're talking about. But behind them, you see the the rug, the carpet 
start to rise up like there's clearly somebody under it and but just rising up like a ghost <laughs> and it took me it, it's dark uh i mean they're holding like candles or torches or something so they're lit but behind them it's dark so it took me a second to even notice that it was happening and then when i did um i was like oh that's cool it was very quiet and slow and creepy and they think that yeah. they're fine. They think that they're alone and barricaded in there and perfectly fine. And then this thing rises up and I, I, I think it ends up grabbing her or, or something. Um, and there's, there's a tussle and, um, they hit this figure, which is still under the carpet. They hit it with something and it falls to the ground. He stabs it with his pitchfork. That's right. And but then when they go to they 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 throw the carpet aside and there's no body there but there's a trap door and he says well we've got to follow yep. we I don't know what his justification is we've got to follow him or or something and of course she doesn't want to again that's I I'm bothered by her character because she's such a wuss like she's really just kind of yeah he has to drag her around she's constantly crying and whining and the in this particular circumstance he's still trying to tell her to stay there he's like you stay here i'll go by myself and i'm thinking what why would you do why do you think that's a good idea you just established the fact this room isn't safe there are crazy trap doors into it that you didn't know about why we are you going to continue and insist she's safe back there by herself and like you said, she's crying and she's whining, like, no, I want to go after you too. So she ends up following him down there anyway. And it is a long slog through this passageway. And I just felt like a lot of this stuff was just filler to pad out the time. Unnecessarily, because it was too long anyway. Um, right, well, and I think that they just wanted this underground tunnel sequence. I, I read, I don't know, the director, I think... Um, was inspired by the chase and terror train, you know, that, that confined kind of, uh, chase. Mm -hmm. And so they, they filmed this. I, I really, I think, you know, it seems like they're running through this elaborate tunnel system. It was really just like two corridors that they just had them running through repeatedly shooting them from different angles the guy is following them and and we do finally see him and he is you know like kind of a typical castle freak he's kind of bat like like he spends a lot of time underground or whatever uh, he's got like a texas chainsaw style dinner scene set up yes <laughs> what a ripoff denise's corpse and then several other clearly very old decomposed corpses i don't know if that's supposed to be other victims or members of his family or what um but he chases them around they eventually get out and then seth uh comes back like you said he goes to the cops but the cops don't believe him and since the cops don't believe him he steals like an assault rifle out of the evidence room <laughs> <laughs> Those cops, this is the most ineffective cops in the world, these cops. Oh, I know, right? And, and then he, he uses the gun to force some guy out of his car. He steals the car. He comes back. Drives up to the gate. How does he get in? I don't remember how he gets in. It's ridiculous. He drives up to the gate, and the first thing I was, I was thinking was, okay, well, please do not subject me to another long, drawn-out sequence of him slowly making his way up to the house. Yeah. But the second thing I was thinking was, oh, okay, well, the first thing he's going to do is use that rifle to shoot the lock off. Or just drive the car through the gate. It's not his car anyway. Yeah, he he doesn't do either. He he just looks at the house, 
slowly starts to walk around the premises, and he finds a spot where the bar is bent back, and that's how he gets in. I'm like, what? What? Why are you doing these things? None of it makes sense. And so then he has a confrontation with what turns out to be the other one, um, mm-hmm. the hairy one, and they kind of fight, I guess. But That's a decent up- fight scene. It might be the best fight scene of the whole movie is, is on the stairwell when they're kind of tumbling down. He's trying to crawl back up, but he keeps pulling him back. He can't. He could barely reach the gun. He can't get the gun. Finally grabs the gun, swings around, and as the monster leaps at him, it's, it's classic, right? He swings the gun around, shoots it at him, and it's enough to propel this guy over the edge and down into a pond in the garden. Uh-huh. And then when he goes down and checks on him, you know, he, first he looks down, the body's there, and then he goes down to check on, and once again, as I expected, the body wasn't there, but just as soon as you notice that, suddenly there's another scare where the guy leaps out from under the water towards him, but but he manages to blast him in the face, and to his credit, he pokes at the body, mm. he pulls it out of the, he drags it out of the water, <laughs> sets it down there, like, looks at it a little bit longer, pokes at it some more before he starts to head back to the house. I thought, oh, eh, you know, as cliche as the rest of this was, the, the end of it is about what you ought to do. Right, right. <laughs> to, in all these movies that we see. And then he runs inside, and he's all excited. He's like, I got him, I got him. And he's standing downstairs, like in uh, the foyer or whatever, and they are up on the landing, the other two, and as he's celebrating, he's grabbed. Yeah, and, it's and quick. Dragged, yeah, and, and, and dragged to where neither we nor they can see him, and you can kind of hear a little bit of a struggle, and then you hear a gunshot, and then there's silence. They call for him, and he doesn't respond, and then the gun, like, slides across the floor where they can see yes. him. Yes! This is this is genius. I actually thought this was the best scene of the movie. <laughs> the gun just slides across the floor, and they're up at the top. They're like, "What the hell do we do?" The gun is just sitting there like bait. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's it's cast in this light uh, across the floor from the open doorway. It's really well lit. This little bit, and Linda Blair's like, "I'm gonna go get the gun," and he's like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "No, I'm gonna go get the gun." So slowly walks down the stairs toward the gun, and as the camera follows her from above and kind of comes down, you see her on one side in the dark. You see the gun, like their salvation, you know, lit almost from like a beam of light from heaven. Uh-huh. God, like light on the side where it's right sitting right there, and you just know, right, that this is a bad idea. But uh, she, of course, goes to grab the gun, and he. L- reaches out for her instead and grabs her and so there's there's a bit of a fight there i don't remember how all that turns out i don't either i don't know he he chases them back upstairs i feel like to that same room that they always go to yes and yes uh, they <laughs> they try to go out the window uh he gets her out but he doesn't quite get out and he gets grabbed um and dragged back in and thrown out the window and frankly i was surprised i thought they would both make it um, even yeah. when he got thrown out the window, I thought, well, he's going to be injured, but she's going to find him later and he's going to be alive. Um, but no, she does find him later and he's dead. But she's up on the roof like, you know, I don't know, like a cat, like <laughs> scurrying <laughs> along the rooftop. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she ends up she goes down a ladder. She gets uh, grabbed and dragged through a window and 
runs away again, and then it's the classic final girl finds all the bodies scene. Yeah. So she she runs around and sees all the bodies, but the last one she sees is Peter's, and she notices that the gate key is hanging from his finger. So she takes it, and she runs to the gate, and I just thought that this part was so funny, like, as, as, uh, I don't know, dangerous as everything has been till now it seems like in this moment she's kind of got all the time in the world Um, yeah (laughs) she runs to the gate and like she's hurrying with the key but the guy never shows up Um, no in fact she she gets it open and she even has the time and the presence of mind to relock it which i thought was yes smart um, mm-hmm. And she gets in the car that Seth had left right there by the gate. Um, initially, it won't start, but don't forget, she's a mechanic. So mm-hmm. she hot wires it um, and accidentally, I guess, backs into the gate, which breaks it and, and, and flips it so that it's now horizontal and parallel to the uh, ground. Ground, um, yeah. And she starts to drive away, but it turns out that the remaining killer is on the roof, and he, like, breaks the windshield and is trying to, like, grab her and choke her through the windshield. But she, I don't remember if she backs or drives the car towards the gate, and because it's now parallel to the ground, those spikes um, are perfectly poised um, to stab him, and he is impaled on the gate. Uh, and then I feel like it cuts to black and it fades back in and it's the next morning and she's either asleep or passed out at the wheel. Um, mm-hmm. But she wakes up, she gets out of the car, the giant killer is still there, dead, impaled on the gate, and she just walks away. <laughs> yep. Freeze frame. The there go the credits. Yep, yep. <laughs> I thought we might be in, in, in for like one final scare or some kind of twist yeah. at the end, but... Uh, no, it just seems nah. I don't know why they had that final scene. I guess they had to show the dawn and of a new day and I guess her okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's a rather I think kind of unremarkable little movie where a lot of it is just really slow. You know, I mean, it's we've we've seen much worse. Oh, definitely. And it had its moments, but it was all so paint by numbers and so predictable uh, that I just, uh, I kind of, I was on autopilot watching it, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. to be honest. And a little disappointed to see that, you know, this wasn't like a great vehicle for Linda Blair either. Um, and uh, any of these other people really. And none of them really went on to do. I mean, uh, Vincent Van Patten was the blonde, hunky guy who was the surfer type dude. And he's. He's like Dick Van Patten's son, and uh, what a couple couple weeks ago we watched Monkey Shines, right? And Joyce mm-hmm. Van Patten was in that. She was the mother, and I think he's her aunt. So I mean, he comes from Hollywood royalty, anyway, or whatever. So he's been in a few things since then. I already mentioned uh, Jeff's character. Uh, you know, he's been in some TV and things, but not really anybody else. So it it wasn't like a huge launching pad for anybody's career. <laughs> it it didn't get great reviews when it came out. It made money, just like all these slasher movies made money when they came out. Um, I hear it has a bit of a cult status, but I'm maybe just to 
make fun of it and call it silly. Aside from that, like, I I don't know. I, I mean, I definitely would never sit through it again. No. Could I recommend it? I mean, just maybe if you're just looking for a Halloween movie to have yeah. on in the background. Other than right. that, no. It, it's, it's really lacking a lot of tension, and it's lacking a lot of payoff, lacking twist, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, There's nothing know. notable about it aside from the fact that Linda Blair is in it. That that mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. It's the only reason we're talking about it today, really. Uh-huh, <laughs> you <true>. and me. <laughs> Honestly, I think that I probably have seen it before, um, but I didn't really remember anything about it. And ten years from now, I'll be able to say the same thing. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen it. I don't remember anything about it because there's just really nothing notable about it. This will be one of these like I don't know, like fifty podcast episodes from now. We'll be saying something like in the midst of our conversation. Did we ever do Hell Night? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us on the second of our series of uh, 1981 slasher films. We've got two more coming up for you this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can find us online if you just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw podcast, where you'll find our website, you'll find our Twitter, you'll find our Facebook page. Leave us a note in any one of those places. If uh, you are interested in supporting our show, look for our Patreon page at patreon.com slash chainsaw podcast. We do post mini-sodes there several a month, and including this month, we have a mini-sode for you that's uh, where we just talk a little bit more in general about horror in that year of 1981 and the slasher movies and just a little bit more background why we decided to do this film uh, for a theme month this month. So until next time, I am Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Chainsaw.